All right. We've got some, with so many special things that are coming up over the next few weeks, I'll be preaching this sermon tonight from the book of Ephesians, and then in two weeks we'll come back, since we don't have a meeting next Wednesday night, in two weeks we'll come back on the 21st, and I'll preach again on Ephesians. Then we've got a long spell all the way up until July the 23rd before we'll have an opportunity to get back to uh, this book again. We'll be going on vacation uh, for a couple of weeks with my daughter being married in in Kentucky, and so we'll be gone for a couple of weeks in the month of July. But we have some able men that I hope that everybody will come to hear that will be preaching on... Uh, uh, Brother Dalton will take care of some Sundays, and we'll have some of our men on other men on Wednesday nights. So we just uh, hope that everybody will make plans to be here and hear these fellows as they preach. But we're going to preach a couple more sermons from uh, the book of Ephesians before we have to stop the study and then pick it up at the end of July. But let's open our Bibles tonight now, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. The second chapter of Ephesians, and for the past two weeks, we have been studying a portion of Scripture in the second chapter in where Paul explains how the Gentile Ephesians were outside of the covenants of grace, outside the promises of Israel. But now Paul explains how that they have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And if you've come to church and know very much about the Old Testament, heard preaching, you know that throughout the Old Testament, God dealt mainly with the nation of Israel. And they were the ones that God gave the promises to of a redeemer. Uh, they were promised a relationship with God. And the Jews were given the right of circumcision as the sign and the seal that they were God's people. But the purpose of God working with Israel was not simply for the exclusion of the Gentiles. Now, it's true, God had set apart Israel from the rest of the world, but what he wanted them to be was a light. He wanted them to be a witness to the rest of the world about the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. But unfortunately, what Israel did was to set themselves apart. And they took these rights and privileges that God had given them, and, and they used those as a separating factor and looked at themselves as being something other than what they were. They thought that they were really uh, good in their own eyes, because they had these certain rights that God had given them. And what Paul does here in, in this second chapter is to set that record straight. And he shows us that all are depraved, both Jews and Gentiles alike. Everybody needs to be saved. And nobody will be saved unless God in his grace should call every person to salvation. So what we have in these verses is actually not an elevation of the Gentiles to the status of the Jews. And that's really what the Jews would like to think. They would like to think that in order for Gentiles to be saved, they have to be brought up to the plane or to the level where the Jews are. But that's not Paul's intention in these writings. His intent is actually to bring the Jew down to where the Gentile is so that the Jew understands that they alike are without God just as much as the Gentiles are without God. He's showing them that they need the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So both Jews and Gentiles, both of these groups have their own set of prejudices. And the question is, how can these two groups together get together? And more importantly than that, how can either one of these groups get together with God? And that's the subject of the message tonight. Let's get together. And I want to talk about that this evening. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. And we want to read our text verses beginning in Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, verse number 14. Ephesians 2 verse 14. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us 
having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father." Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. We just ask you, Lord, you'd open our hearts and our minds to the knowledge of your word. Help us to learn something from your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Reading those verses, the text verses that we read tonight, I think that we can readily see that the major theme of these verses is the word peace. How can we have peace? How can we have peace with man man to man, and also how can we have peace with God. But before we ever recognize how peace can be made, the first thing we need to understand is why there is no peace. Why is it that there is no peace in the world? And peace is something that's very much sought after. We hear all the time on the news and on the newspapers about uh, people wanting to achieve peace and going to different nations and so forth and trying to achieve peace. But it should be evident to all of us here that real peace in the world has never been achieved. Those of you who may know a little bit of history about, uh, about World War II may remember that before World War II, there was a British prime minister by the name of Neville Chamberlain. And Neville Chamberlain decided to go to Germany to try to make peace with Adolf Hitler. In 1938, Chamberlain went to meet with Hitler, and he came back in 1938 proclaiming peace. And he said, peace in our time, peace with honor. And he thought that he had achieved peace with Hitler. But it wasn't just a short year later in 1939 that Britain declared war on Germany because Germany had invaded Poland. And so there was no peace. And if you know the history, you also know that that disgraced Neville Chamberlain. And when Neville Chamberlain stepped down, that gave rise to one of the world's greatest leaders, and that was Winston Churchill. But there was no peace. Peace could not be attained. If you go back to World War I, just uh, along about that time, that Woodrow Wilson uh, pinned all of his hopes on something called the League of Nations. And he thought that they could achieve peace. But as I've just spoken, it was just a while before there was, was a World War II. And so there was no peace. Now, right after World War II, the, the United Nations was formed. And if there ever was a dismal, disgraceful failure at peace, it's the United Nations. Well, why is there no peace? Uh, why, why can't we achieve peace? I mean, why aren't we ever successful at this? Well, the problem is that men believe that peace means cessation of war. But peace, real peace, means way more, much more than just cessation of war. I mean, the only way that we can have peace is when people break down the barriers that are between them and they don't just stop it, stop fighting, but people get together and they start cooperating with one another and they start loving one another. But that's impossible. And the reason why is because the world really doesn't understand love. There isn't any such thing as the common good of man unless we understand what love is. And I'll put this very simply to you. There's no one who understands love unless they know Jesus Christ. The only way that you can know love is to know Christ. And so consequently, the the United States of America and the rest of the world can forget about ever having peace with people like the Muslims or any nation that serve some other God than Jehovah God. Because the uniting factor between all of us is the issue of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can forget 
forget about peace and we can even forget about healing the divisions in our own country unless people are converted to the Lord Jesus Christ because through Christ is the only way that peace can be universally established. So why is there no peace? Well, let's begin with this tonight. What's the reason there is no peace? Well, number one, sin separates us. The problem why we can't have peace with one another is that sin separates us. It separates us from one another, and it also separates us from God. In Isaiah, uh, Isaiah wrote in chapter 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. And so sin is the culprit here. And as long as there is sin, there will always be separation. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned that both Jews and Gentiles have these prejudices against one another, and those prejudices stem from the fact of sin. Now, how did separation get its start? Why is it that there's separation in the world today? Well, let's notice, first of all, that the root of separation is pride. If we go back to the introduction of sin into the universe, how did sin get its start? I think all of us know that it started with Lucifer. It started with Satan. And it began when Satan decided that he wanted to be God. And so he said, I will ascend unto the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. And so Satan looked at himself and he said, I deserve to be God. And so pride was his destruction. And Proverbs says that very thing. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so this is what Satan instilled in man. He spoke to Adam and he said, Hath God said? Who does God think he is to tell you what to do? Why don't you assert your rights? Why don't you stand up for yourself? Don't you realize who you are? And as one commentator said, he said, I don't want to be paradoxical about this, but he said the reason that man fell is because man decided that he was going to stand up. And there's the problem, it's pride. Pride caused the fall of man. And the Bible tells us a haughty spirit goes before a fall. And this is exactly what we find in Jews and Gentiles alike. There's pride among both groups. The Jews were thinking, those uncircumcised Gentiles, they're like dogs. And the Jews would regularly play, I just thank you, Lord, that I was not born a Gentile. And the Gentile nations, they were the same way. You may remember that when we preached in the book of Acts that that Paul preached to the Philippians and he cast a devil out of the divining damsel. And when he did that, the owners of that slave girl, they took Paul and Silas and they dragged them before the magistrates. And here's what they said. They said, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. Now, they didn't just say these men. They said these men being Jews. And that's the Gentiles looking down on the Jews. And they just as much desire to be separated from the Jews as the Jews did from the Gentiles. And so the problem here is a problem of pride. And what must be corrected in men is pride. The Bible says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. You know what the problem is we can't do that? It's because we've got the wrong kind of love for ourselves. We don't know what love is. We can't love our neighbor correctly if we can't love ourselves correctly. And we can't love ourselves rightly until we learn to love God rightly. The very first thing, the first commandment, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God. And he said the second, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you can't get love to God right, you can't get love for your neighbor right either. That's where it starts. It starts with God. So it's, it's pride that separates us. I think highly of myself and you think highly of yourself. And so what we're going to do, we're going to take care of numero uno first. 
That's what we're always going to do. So this is what separates us. It always separates us. The root of separation is pride, and pride will keep us from getting together. But we notice, secondly, the solution. The solution to separation is peace. And if we go back to our text, verse number 14 says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now, I want you to notice in that scripture these words, the middle wall of partition. And the reference that we have there is to the temple in Jerusalem. And in the temple of Jerusalem, there was a system of walls. There were walls that kept people out. The Gentiles could approach the temple, but they could go no further than an area of the temple that was called the court of the Gentiles. No Gentile could advance beyond that area called the court of the Gentiles. You also might remember in our study of Acts that the reason that Paul was put into prison in Rome, the event that precipitated this was that they thought when he went into the temple that he took a Gentile into the temple beyond the court of the Gentiles. And they were so upset about this that they would have torn Paul to pieces right there in the temple yard if uh, God hadn't protected him. And so there's these walls that were put up there to keep the Gentiles out. They're walls of separation. And probably the most, most awesome, the most famous wall of separation is the veil that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies. That was a veil that separated those two compartments. And what it did was it kept the Jews out. It kept the common priest out. It even kept the high priest out except on only one day of the year, on the great day of atonement. And so that veil hung there in the temple between the holy place and the holy of holies. And on the other side of that veil was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that very place right there represented the throne room of God. Now, I like to preach on the veil because the veil represents the body of Jesus Christ. That veil represents Jesus' body that had to be smitten. Jesus' body had to be torn before we could have peace with God. And the scriptures tell us that when Christ died on the cross, he spoke these words. He said, it is finished. And the moment that he said that, that veil in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And access to God was then made possible. Now men can come into the presence of God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is our peace. He's the only solution to our separation. Our separation from God and our separation from each other. Now, that leads me to the second observation tonight. Sin separates us, but Christ reconciles us. Christ reconciles us. Christ is the one who reconciles us to God and to each other. And this is really a marvelous thing in its accomplishment. How God does this, this is a wonderful thing. Because Christ does not reconcile us by improving what we already are. He doesn't reconcile us by modifying us. And he doesn't just come in and correct some areas of our life that need to be straightened up a little bit. Take care of some weak areas that we have. No, what Christ comes to do is to do a do-over. He comes into our heart and he recreates us. That's what the Bible says. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Spiritually recreated. We're born again. And the scriptures say we become a new creature in Christ. Now, verse number 16 says that we are reconciled to God by the cross. And so what God does, he recreates us through Jesus Christ so that our natural divisions become replaced with supernatural desires. Now we can get together. We have the nature of Christ. And once we have the nature of Christ, then we can be reconciled one to another and we're also reconciled to God. Now, I want to take just a moment to discuss this word reconcile. 
And just a very simple definition of reconcile is to bring people together. Let's get together. Let's be reconciled. Now, that's the simple definition. But the Bible has five very important facets to this idea of reconciliation. It's not as simple as the, as the definition that I just gave. Now, let me list these for you. We're going to talk about, just for a few minutes, what reconciliation means. What does this mean in the Bible? Well, number one, it means to be changed from hostility to friendship. And that's the most basic meaning of reconciliation. Once we're at one another's throats, and now we're friends with one another. If you have teenage kids at home, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, You know, they're, they're friends. They can be enemies with a person one day, and they're friends within the next. And you can't keep up with, you know, yesterday's worst enemy is today's best friend. And that's what this means, changing hostility to friendship. The second meaning is reuniting or reconnecting. And when we get to that definition, the meaning of reconciliation begins to build because this is more than just putting people back together on speaking terms. This means to reconnect them and to reunite them so that they can be brought together again. Then the third meaning of reconciliation in the Bible is that complete enmity is changed to complete amity. And the word complete here is what we need to focus on. Because what this is, this is not just patching up an argument in order for us to have appeasement. Now, we were talking about peace among nations. When you think about how nations get together for peace, you know, they can go to a peace table and they can sit there for hours. They can sit there for weeks, sometimes for months and even years trying to achieve peace. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes up with a bright idea, let's make a compromise. And a compromise is not really what either one of them wants because they don't get everything that they wanted. A compromise is not what they want. Compromise is just some way that they can reach appeasement, just something that they can live with. But that's not the Bible's idea of reconciliation. Reconciliation is changing total hatred to total friendship. It's changing complete enmity to complete amity. Then number four... The fourth meaning of this is that the greater descends to the lesser. Now, this is an interesting part of it because in the Greek language, the idea is that one of the parties initiates the action. And what the word actually means is that the greater party comes down to the lower. In other words, the party that's above comes down to the one that's below. And that's a beautiful word when you think about what Christ has done for us and what God has done for us. God is the one who is wronged. And definitely God's the greater party. But God comes down to us. You'll never find this happening, that man reaches up to God. Man does not try to seek peace with God. God brings peace to men. And that's the way that it always works. God comes to us seeking peace. Then the fifth meaning of this is to be restored by repair. Now, when you repair something, the indication is that there was something before that was whole. It got broken, and now it needs to be fixed. And so you repair it. And this is the way it is with God and man. There was something there before. When God created Adam in the Garden of Eden, he created him perfect. And there was complete fellowship with God. But man's sin broke that relationship. And so what Christ has come to do is to restore the relationship. He fixes what is broken. If we look back at chapter 1, verse number 10, we find what Christ has done and what he will do in reconciliation. The scripture says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So these are the extended biblical meanings of the word reconcile. 
Now, let me point out to you two important aspects of reconciliation. The first one is that forgiveness is not enough. It is not enough just to be forgiven for our sins. I mean, we think, now, should my reconciliation with God be just as simple as me going to God and say, God, I have sinned. Would you please forgive me? And if I forgive my sins, won't God forgive me? Well, if forgiveness was all that was necessary for us to have complete reconciliation with God, then God could have forgiven us without Jesus Christ. It wouldn't have been necessary for Jesus to come into the world. And if Jesus did come, then he certainly would not have to go to the cross if forgiveness is all that we need. But forgiveness is not the only issue. There's another problem, and that's the second point here. Fellowship must be restored. Forgiveness is not enough. Fellowship has to be restored. Now, here is the problem that most people have when you think about sin. We believe that sin is just doing bad things. Even if you're not a Christian, if you're a lost person, I mean, you have that idea of sin. I mean, all of us think this way, and and we know this. We understand what sin is. Be sure your sins will find you out, and we know what that means. It means when you commit a sin, the bad action is going to follow you. And so we just think sin is doing bad things. But sin is far worse than simply doing bad things. Because the problem with sin is how it reflect, uh, affects our relationship with God. There is a relationship problem because of our sins. And that has to be taken care of. And so we can't just concentrate on what we did wrong. We must also think about and concentrate on the consequences of having that fellowship broken with God. And every time you sin, don't just think about the fact that you committed a bad deed. You did something wrong. Think about what it does with your fellowship with God. That's the most important aspect of it. So what is a Christian? What, what really is a Christian? Well, the book of 1 John describes this better for us than any other place. A Christian, being a Christian, is to be in fellowship with God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, here's how it states it. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been paying attention to me, you should see this. This is exactly what I've been talking about. John says, you cannot have fellowship with us because the root of our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Reconciliation starts with fellowship with God. That's the beginning point. Let's get together. But we never can get together until we get together with God first. When we have fellowship with God first, then we can be in fellowship with one another. Now, what does that verse say? It says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, here is the problem in the world. We cannot have peace with a Muslim country. We cannot have peace with the Buddhist. We cannot have peace with a Hindu country for any extended period of time until this happens, until both they and we have fellowship with God, fellowship through Jesus Christ. Peace cannot be achieved any other way. There can't be reconciliation. Now, that's what Paul's telling these Ephesians. Both Jews and Gentiles must be brought together through Jesus Christ. Now, let me digress for just a moment. Let's go back to the meanings of reconciliation. The fifth meaning, again, was restoration or being restored by repair. Now, what we're talking about here is just not the Jews and the advantages that the Jews had. We have to go back further than Abraham. 
We have to go back further than the promise that God made to Abraham that he would make him a great nation. Of course, we all understand this is where the Jews came from. They came from Abraham. And certainly there was a dividing line between the Jews and the Gentiles with Abraham. There's this issue of circumcision uh, that divided Jews and Gentiles. But if we're going to solve this problem, we've got to go much further back than that. We have to go all the way back to the original division to establish a repair. So what we have to do is we have to go all the way back to Adam before the fall. And when you go back to Adam, what do you find? There are no Jews and Gentiles. There are any Jews and Gentiles. That, that division hasn't been made yet. They're all one in Adam. And so we go back to Adam... And that shows us that every person, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter what you are, you need to be restored. Now look at our text verses at the end of verse 15. It says, For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. In other words, what God does, he takes two men, he takes the Jew and the Gentile, and he makes one man again. He repairs the division. He restores the brokenness between us and God and also between man to man. And so once again, we become one man. We become united in our relationship with Adam. So we are one spiritual entity, just as Adam was one individual man. Now, folks, today you'll hear all the time this idea about the universal brotherhood of man. And you hear about the universal fatherhood of God. There is no such thing. There's no such thing in this world today because there is a dividing line. There's a division between people. I'm not your brother and you're not my brother. God is not my father and God is not your father as long as we are in our natural condition without Jesus Christ. But when we come into Christ, when we receive him as Savior, I do become your brother and God does become our father. You know, I've said this before. I have never gotten used to calling other Christians Mr. and Mrs., where I come from back in Kentucky, nobody, no Christian ever calls a person Mr. or Mrs. It's always brother or sister. Now, when I came here, I, 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 it was just so unnatural because everybody was calling everybody Mr. and Mrs. But if I find out that you are a believer, you're my brother, you're my sister. Uh, brother Jason and Sister Sheila and Brother Jack and Sister, what's your name? I don't know. And uh, Brett and so on and Brian, brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's, I think it's good for us to refer to one another that way. We have been reconciled. We're reconciled with one another. We're part of one family. So let's act like we love one another and treat like we love one another like we love them. So forgiveness is not enough. We have to have the breach restored. We have to be brought back into fellowship. And folks, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He tore down that wall of partition between us and God and the wall that exists between man and man. He mended the relationship to God and mended our relationship to one another. And so Paul relates this to the Jew and Gentile. And he says in verse 17 of our text, And he came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. Have you thought about that verse? He preached peace to them that are afar off. That's talking about the Gentile and to those that are nigh. And that's speaking about the Jew. Now there's one thing about this. This isn't part of my sermon, but I think I'll explain that verse for just a moment. A person who's far off and a person who's nigh, as Paul puts it here, who is not saved, both of them are lost. Both of them are on their way to hell. It doesn't make any difference how close you get to the line, how many good things you do, how many advantages and rights and privileges that you have. If you don't get all the way into Christ, you're as lost as this guy that's way over here somewhere. 
He said he brought those that were far away and those that were nigh because both need Jesus Christ. So reconciliation brings peace, and that's the only way we can get together. Now let's look at this third area. Sin separates us, Christ reconciles us, and thirdly, the Spirit unifies us. Now look at verse number 18. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now, I'm going to comment more on this in the next lesson. But you'll notice in this verse, there is a very profound doctrine. If you have your Bible open, let's look at that. Look at the verse closely. In this verse, we see the Trinity. For through him, that's Jesus, we both have access by one Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, unto the Father, and that's God the Father. Now, I hope you remember that when we studied the first chapter, we talked about salvation unfolds through the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, here we have another restatement of that theme. Only what Paul is showing us now is that the way that we come to the Father, the way that we are conveyed to God, is through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. Once we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, then we are conveyed to God by the Spirit. So that's the Spirit working in us, and that's the means by which we contact the Father. Now, the next message that I'm going to preach on this in a couple of weeks is on the subject, reaching the Father. And it's by the Spirit that we all have access to the Father. Now, let me point out the means by which the the Spirit unifies us and how we are granted access to the Father. First, let me say that we are unified through one mediator. We are unified through one mediator. And by that, I mean that all of us, every single one of us, have been unified exactly the same way. In the past few weeks, uh, you've heard me make references at different times to dispensationalism. And, and I, I believe dispensationalism contains some errors. And so, therefore, I don't take all of the aspects of dispensational interpretations. Now, some of them I do, some I don't. But one of the most serious errors, I think, is overlooking the covenant of redemption that existed between the Father and Son before the creation of the world. And it is that very covenant itself that undergirds the entire biblical doctrine of salvation. And you can't ignore that covenant. The moment that you ignore that covenant, then you get messed up on the doctrine of man. You get confused on the doctrine of redemption. You don't know what atonement's all about. And you get confused about the doctrine of grace. That's one of the errors of dispensationalism. Now, another way that dispensationalism is wrong is that it pushes Israel and the church so far apart that some have come up with some other way that the Jews can be saved. And so they will say that the Jew can be saved by keeping the law. Some of them say that. And so what they've done, the same people who had preached hellfire and brimstone sermons, if you were to get up and say that Mary, the Virgin Mary, is a mediator between us and God, they they would get steamed over that. But the very same people will say, well, the law, the law can be a mediator between you and God. Now, maybe you're confused about what I'm saying, but there are some dispensationalists who believe that Jews in the past were saved by keeping the law and that there will come times in the future where they will once again be saved by keeping the law. Well, that can't be true. What they're saying is that Christ is not the only mediator. There can be another mediator between God and man. Well, to say that the law could be a mediator is to say that the laws that the Jews can draw near to God by keeping the law. That's how they access God. But that is so antithetical to the teachings of Paul here in Ephesians, it almost boggles the mind how there can be so much ignorance over this. 
But what is it that actually brings that ignorance? Well, it's denying the doctrines that we read in Ephesians chapter 1. It's denying John chapter 6. It's denying John 17. It's denying the covenant that exists between the Father and the Son before creation. And those doctrines, are, that doctrine is expressed through election and predestination. Now the scriptures teach us that we have one access to God. And that's by Jesus Christ. Now that means that excludes Mary. Mary cannot be a mediator between us and God. It excludes all the dead saints that people pray to. It it excludes uh, the angels that some people think can be mediators. And folks, at all times, it excludes the law. The law can never be a mediator between us and God. We only have one access, and that's through the Spirit in the one mediator, Jesus Christ. And that's for Jews and Gentiles alike. So there can never be one method of salvation for Jews and another method for the Gentiles. Unfortunately, in some of the neo-evangelical circles today, that is exactly what they're teaching. They're teaching that there is a way that Jews can be saved without Jesus Christ. But that's wrong. It's the same spirit that unifies us. And then secondly, we are unified through the cross. The spirit points us to the cross. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to the cross of Jesus Christ and there is no other way. There is no other means of salvation. Now verse number 16 says that we are reconciled to God in one body by the cross. Well, what does Paul mean when he says that we come by the cross? Well, it might surprise you that there are some erroneous views about this. I mean, people are confused about what Paul means here. Let me tell you what Paul does not mean. Number one, Paul does not mean this. He does not mean that God forgives the cross. Now, some people can look at this and they say, well, it's a terrible thing that the Jews did. The Jews and the Romans, they crucified Jesus. And they say, you know something? We are just as guilty of that. You and I have also crucified Jesus. And we sing the song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And so they say that we are forgiven for the cross. But that's not making, that's not making peace by the cross. That's making peace in spite of the cross. Now those things all might be true, what I've just said. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Then there are others who say that we have peace by the cross because God has turned something terrible into something that's very good. Uh, We crucified Jesus on the cross and he took that terrible thing and God turned that around and so it would be something marvelous for all of mankind. That's also true, but that's not what Paul means here. That's also just another way that's saying that uh, God made peace in spite of the cross. And then there are some who look at this and say, well, when I see the awfulness of the, of the innocent Christ dying on the cross, when I see that, I'll be put to shame. When I see the enormity of it all and how terribly that, that Christ was treated, then I will realize my sinfulness and I'll come to God. That's the view of Hollywood. That's the view of Hollywood when they make a movie like The Passion of the Christ. The awfulness, that's what will bring men to Christ. And don't you know that there were plenty of preachers who said that the passion of the Christ is the greatest evangelistic tool the world has ever seen. That's not what Paul means. What does Paul mean? He means that something has to happen on God's side. He speaks of the blood of Christ. He talks of the death of Christ. He speaks of the cross of Christ. And it's because of the cross that we have peace. But how is that done? What does he mean? What he means is, on the cross, that Christ traded his righteousness for my sins. That's what it means. 
And what this is, is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. All of those, those things that we studied in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and all the sacrifices that were made, they took those animals and they confessed their sins on those animals and those animals became the substitute that took away their sins. Only it wasn't the animal itself, it's what that animal represented. It was the Lord Jesus Christ and he became the substitute for our sins. So this is a picture or a symbol of Christ. And Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away sin. Now, what we call this is double imputation. It's my sins imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness imputed to me. My sins are charged to Christ and Christ's righteousness is charged to me. And the only way that I could ever be saved is by that double transference, double imputation. Now, that's what Paul means when he says we have peace. We have reconciliation by the cross. And when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the reason that God forsook him was because of this very thing right here. Our sins were transferred to Jesus. They were taken from us. And because he became our sin, God had to turn his back on his own son. And then when that sin was removed, what happens? We become reconciled to God. Now, you see what we've done here? We've come full circle. Now we're back at the very first point. Sin separates us from God. But when the sin is taken away, now we're reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. There's no cause for separation when the sin is gone. Folks, we just thank the Lord for the Holy Spirit that points us to the cross. You can't be saved. You can't be reconciled. You can't have peace without the cross. So you see why there is no peace in the world today? Not until the whole world knows Jesus will there ever be any peace. That's the last statement on your listening sheet tonight. Not until the whole world knows Jesus will there ever be any peace. That's why Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There is no peace until they receive the gospel. Now what does that mean to you and me? Who has the ability to bring peace? You and I have the ability to bring peace to the world. And how can we do it? By telling people about Jesus Christ. The only way that we can be reconciled to them and them to us and us all to God is through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we bring peace? Forget the United Nations. Forget about the enforcement of the United States military. That won't bring peace. Only Jesus brings peace. Tell people about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... The words that we've read tonight, we thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And without him, we could have no peace with God. We thank you, Lord, for what he's done and taking our sins away from us. And I just pray, Lord, that every person here tonight knows you personally as their Savior. And that they realize that the only way that they can come into the presence of a righteous, holy God is through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross of Calvary. Thank you, Lord, for what we've learned tonight. Blessing this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing. Mm